A Bite of Stars, A Slug of Time and Thou. On the shore of the sea, he stood looking out over the long foam lines far where vague the islands lifted or were guessed. There, he said to the sea, there lies my kingdom. The sea said to him what the sea says to everybody. As evening moved from behind his back across the water, the foam lines paled and the wind fell, and very far in the west shone a star, perhaps, perhaps a light, or his desire for a light. He climbed the streets of his town again in late dusk. The shops and huts of his neighbors were looking empty now, cleared out, cleaned up, packed away in preparation for the end. Most of the people were up at the weeping in Heights Hall or down with the ragers in the fields, but Liff had not been able to clear out and clean up. His wares and belongings were too heavy to throw away, too hard to break, too dull to burn. Only centuries could waste them. Wherever they were piled or dropped or thrown, they formed what might have been, or it seemed to be, or yet might be, a city. So he had not tried to get rid of his things. His yard was still stacked and piled with bricks, thousands and thousands of bricks of his own making. The kiln stood cold but ready, the barrels of clay and dry mortar and lime, the hods and barrows and trowels of his trade, everything was there. One of the fellows from Scrivener's Lane had asked, sneering, Going to build a brick wall and hide behind it when that old inn comes, man? Another neighbor on his way up to the Heights Hall gazed a while at those stacks and heaps and loads and mounds of well-shaped, well-baked bricks, all a soft reddish glow in the gold of the afternoon sun, and sighed at last with the weight of them on his heart, things... Things, free yourself of things, Liff, from the weight that drags you down. Come with us, above the ending world. Liff had picked up a brick from the heap and put it in place on the stack and smiled in embarrassment. When they were all past, he had gone neither up to the hall nor out to help wreck the fields and kill the animals, but down to the beach, the end of the ending world, beyond which lay only water. Now back in his brickyard hut, with the smell of salt in his clothes and his face hot with the sea wind, he still felt neither the ragers laughing and wrecking despair, nor the soaring and weeping despair of the communicants of the heights. He felt empty. He felt hungry. He was a heavy little man, and the sea wind at the world's edge had blown at him all evening without moving him at all. "'Hey, Liff,' said the widow from Weaver's Lane, which crossed his street a few houses down, I saw you coming up the street, and never another soul since sunset, and getting dark, and quieter than... She did not say what the town was quieter than, but went on. Have you had your supper? I was about to take my roast out of the oven, and the little one and I will never eat up all that meat before the end comes, no doubt. And I hate to see good meat go to waste. Well, thank you very much, says Liff, putting on his coat again. And they went down Mason's Lane to Weaver's Lane through the dark and the wind sweeping up steep streets from the sea. In the widow's lamp-lit house, Liff played with her baby, the last born in the town, a little fat boy just learning how to stand up. 
Liff stood him up, and he laughed and fell over, while the widow set out bread and hot meat on the table of heavy woven cane. They sat to eat, even the baby, who worked with four teeth at a hard hunk of bread. "'How is it you're not up on the hill or in the fields?' asked Liff. And the widow replied as if the answer sufficed to her mind. "'Well, I have the baby.' Liff looked around the little house, which her husband, who had been one of Liff's bricklayers, had built. "'This is good,' he said. "'I haven't tasted meat since last year sometime.' "'I know, I know. No house is being built any more.' "'Not a one,' he said. "'Not a wall, nor a hen house. Not even repairs. But your weaving, that's still wanted.' "'Yes, some of them want new clothes right up to the end. This meat I bought from the ragers that slaughtered all my lord's flocks.' and I paid with the money I got for a piece of fine linen I wove for my lord's daughter's gown that she wants to wear at the end. <laughs> the widow gave a little derisive, sympathetic snort and went on. But now there's no flax and scarcely any wool. No more to spin, no more to weave. The fields burnt and the flocks dead. Yes, said Liff, eating the good roast meat. Bad times, he said. The worst times. And now, the widow went on, where's bread to come from with the fields burnt? And water, now they're poisoning the wells. I mean, I sound like the weepers up there, don't I? Help yourself, Liv. Spring lamb's the finest meat in the world, my man always said, till autumn came, and then he'd say roast pork's the finest meat in the world. Come on now, give yourself a proper slice. That night in his hut in the brickyard, Liv dreamed. Usually he slept as still as the bricks themselves, but this night he drifted and floated and dreamed all night to the islands. And when he woke, they were no longer a wish or a guess. Like a star, as daylight darkens, they had become certain. He knew them. But what in his dream had borne him over the water? He had not flown, he had not walked, he had not gone underwater like the fish. Yet he had come across the gray-green plains and the wind-moved hillocks of the sea to the islands. He had heard voices call and seen the lights of towns. He set his mind to think how a man could ride on water. He thought of how grass floats on streams and how one might make a sort of mat of woven cane and lie on it, pushing with one's hands. But the great cane breaks were still smoldering down by the stream, and the piles of withies at the basket makers had all been burnt. On the islands, in his dream, he had seen canes or grasses half a hundred feet high, with brown stems thicker than his arms could reach around, and a world of green leaves spread sunward from the thousand outreaching twigs. On those stems a man might ride over the sea, but no such plants grew in his country nor ever had, though in the heights hall was a knife handle made of a dull brown stuff said to come from a plant that grew in some other land called wood, but he could not ride across the bellowing sea on a knife handle. Greased hides might float, but the tanners had been idle now for weeks. There were no hides for sale. He might as well stop looking about for any help. He carried his barrow and his largest hod down to the beach that white windy morning and laid them in the still water of a lagoon. Indeed, they floated deep in the water, but when he leaned even the weight of one hand on them, they tipped, filled, sank. They were too light, he thought. He went back up the cliff and through the streets, loaded the barrow with useless, well-made bricks, and wheeled a hard load down. 
As so few children had been born these last years, there was no young curiosity about to ask him what he was doing, though a rager or two, groggy from last night's wreckfest, glanced sidelong at him from a dark doorway through the brightness of the air. All that day he brought down bricks and the makings of mortar, and the next day, though he had not had the dream again, he began to lay his bricks there on the blustering beach of March with rain and sand handy in great quantities to set his cement. He built a little brick dome, upside down, oval with pointed ends like a fish, all of a single course of bricks laid spiral very cunningly. If a cupful or a barrowful of air would float, would not a brick domeful? and it would be strong. But when the mortar was set, and straining his broad back, he overturned the dome and pushed it into the cream of the breakers. It dug deeper and deeper into the wet sand, burrowing down like a clam or a sand flea. The waves filled it and refilled it when he tipped it empty, and at last a green-shouldered breaker caught it with its white dragging back pole, rolled it over, smashed it back into its elemental bricks, and sank them in the restless, sodden sand. And there stood Liff, wet to the neck, and wiping salt spray out of his eyes. Nothing lay westward on the sea but wave rack and rain clouds, but they were there. He knew them, with their great grasses ten times a man's height, their wild golden fields raked by the sea wind, their white towns, their white-crowned hills above the sea, and the voices of shepherds called on the hills. I'm a builder, not a floater, said Liff, after he had considered his stupidity from all sides, and he came doggedly out of the water and up the cliffside path and through the rainy streets to get another barrel load of bricks. Free for the first time in a week for his fool dream of floating, he noticed now that Leather Street seemed deserted. The tannery was rubbishy and vacant. The craftsmen's shops lay like a row of little black gaping mouths, and the sleeping room windows above them were blind. At the end of the lane, an old cobbler was burning with a terrible stench, a small heap of new shoes, never worn. Beside him, a donkey waited, saddled, flicking its ears at the stinking smoke. Liff went on and loaded his barrow with bricks, this time as he wheeled it down, straining back against the tug of the barrow on the steep streets, swinging all the strength of his shoulders to balance its course on the winding cliff path down to the beach. A couple of townsmen followed him. Two or three more from Scrivener's Lane followed after them, and several more from the streets round the marketplace, so that by the time he straightened up, the sea foam fizzing on his bare black feet and the sweat cold on his face, there was a little crowd strung out along the deep single track of his barrow over the sand. They had the lounging listless air of ragers. Liff paid them no heed, though he was aware that the widow of Weaver's Lane was up on the cliffs watching with a scared face. He ran the barrow out into the sea till the water was up to his chest and tipped the bricks out and came running in with a great breaker, his banging barrow full of foam. Already some of the ragers were drifting away down the beach. A tall fellow from the Scrivener's Lane lot lounged by him and said with a little grin, Why don't you throw him from the top of the cliff, man? They'd only hit the sand, said Liff. And you want to drown them? Well, good. You know, there was some of us thought you was building something down here. They was going to make cement out of you. Keep those bricks wet and cool, man. Grinning, the scrivener drifted off, and Liff started up the cliff for another load. 
Come for supper, Liff, said the widow at the cliff's top with a worried voice, holding her baby close to keep it from the wind. I will, he said. I'll bring a loaf of bread. I laid in a couple before the bakers left. He smiled, but she did not. As they climbed the streets together, she asked, Are you dumping your bricks in the sea, Liff? He laughed wholeheartedly and answered yes. She had a look then that might have been relief and might have been sadness, but at supper in her lamplit house she was quiet and easy as ever, and they ate their cheese and stale bread with good cheer. Next day he went on carrying bricks down, load after load, and if the ragers watched him they thought him busy on their own kind of work. The slope of the beach out to deep water was gradual so that he could keep building without ever working above water. He had started at low tide so that his work would never be laid bare. At high tide it was hard, dumping the bricks and trying to lay them in rough courses with the whole sea boiling in his face and thundering over his head. But he kept at it. Towards evening he brought down long iron rods and braced what he had built, for a cross current tended to undermine his causeway about eight feet from its beginning. He made sure that even the tips of the rods were underwater at low tide so that no rager might suspect an affirmation was being made. A couple of elderly men coming down from a weeping in the Heights Hall passed him clanging and battering his empty barrow up the stone streets in dusk and gravely smiled upon him. It is well to be free of things, said one softly, and the other nodded. Next day, though still he had not dreamed of the islands again, Liff went on building his causeway. The sand began to shelve off more steeply as he went further. His method now was to stand on the last bit he had built and tip the carefully loaded barrow from there, and then tip himself off and work, floundering and gasping and coming up and pushing down to get the bricks leveled and fitted between the preset rods, then up again across the gray sand and up the cliff and bang clatter through the quiet streets for another load. Sometime that week the widow said, meeting him in his brickyard, let me throw him over the cliff for you. It'll save you one leg of the trip. It's heavy work loading the barrow, he said. Oh, well, said she. All right, so long as you want to, but bricks are heavy bastards. Don't try to carry many. I'll give you the small barrow, and a little rat here can sit on the load and get a ride. So she helped him, on and off, through days of silvery weather, fog in the morning, clear sea and sky all afternoon, and the weeds and crannies of the cliff flowering. There was nothing else left to flower. The causeway ran out many yards from shore now, and Liff had to learn a skill which no one else had ever learned that he knew of, except the fish. He could float and move himself about on the water or under it in the very sea without touching foot or hand to solid earth. He had never heard that a man could do this thing, but he did not think much about it being so busy with his bricks, in and out of air and in and out of water all day long, with the foam, the bubbles of water-circled air, or air-circled water, all about him, and the fog and the April rain, a confusion of the elements. Sometimes he was happy down in the murky, green, unbreathable world, wrestling strangely willful and weightless bricks among the staring shoals, and only the need of air drove him gasping up into the spray-laden wind. He built all day long, scrambling up on the sand to collect the bricks that his faithful helper dumped over the cliff's edge for him, load them in his barrow, and run them out the causeway that went straight out a foot or two under sea level at low tide and four or five feet under at high. 
Then dump them at the end, dive in, and build. Then back ashore for another load. He came up into town only at evening. Worn out, salt bleared and salt itching, hungry as a shark to share what food turned up with the widow and her little boy. Lately, though, spring was getting on, with soft, long, warm evenings, and the town was very dark and still. One night, when he was not too tired to notice this, he spoke of it, and the widow said, Oh, they're all gone now, I think. All. A pause. Where do they go? She shrugged. She raised her dark eyes to his across the table and gazed through lamplit silence at him for a while. Where, she said. Where does your sea road lead, Lith? He stayed still a while. To the islands, he answered at last, and then laughed and met her look. She did not laugh. She only said, Are they there? Is it true, then, that there are islands? And she looked over at her sleeping baby and out the open doorway into the darkness of late spring that lay warm in the streets where no one walked and the rooms where no one lived. At last she looked back at Liff and said to him, Liff, you know there aren't many bricks left, and a few hundred. You'll have to make some more. And she began to cry softly. By God, said Liff, thinking of his underwater road across the sea that went for a 120 feet and the sea that went on 10,000 miles from the end of it. I'll swim there. Now then, don't cry, dear heart. Would I leave you and the little rat here by yourselves after all the bricks you've nearly hit my head with and all the queer weeds and shellfish you've found us to eat lately? After your table and fireside and your bed and your laughter, would I leave you when you cry? Now be still, don't cry. Let me think of a way we can get to the islands, all of us together. But he knew there was no way, not for a brickmaker. He had done what he could do, and what he could do went 120 feet from shore. Do you think, he asked after a long time, during which she had cleared the table and rinsed the plates in well water that was coming clear again now that the ragers had been gone many days, do you think that maybe this, he found it hard to say, but she stood quiet, waiting, and he had to say it, that this is the end? Stillness. In the one lamplit room, in all the dark rooms and streets, in the burnt fields and the wasted lands, stillness. In the black hall above them on the hill's height, stillness. A silent air, a silent sky. Silence in all places, unbroken, unreplying, except for the far sound of the sea, and very soft, though nearer, the breathing of a sleeping child. No, the woman said. She sat down across from him and put her hands upon the table, fine hands as dark as earth, the palms like ivory. No, she said, the end will be the end. This is still just the waiting for it. Then why are we still here, just us? Well, she said, you had your things, your bricks, and I had the baby. Tomorrow we must go, he said, after a time. She nodded. Before sunrise they were up. There was nothing at all left to eat, and so when she had put a few clothes for the baby in a bag and had on her warm leather mantle and he had stuck his knife and trowel in his belt and put on a warm cloak that had been her husband's, they left the little house, going out into the cold, wan light in the deserted streets. They went downhill, he leading, she following with the sleepy child in a fold of her cloak. He turned neither to the road that led north up the coast, 
nor to the southern road, but went on past the marketplace and out on the cliff and down the rocky path to the beach. All the while she followed, and neither of them spoke. At the edge of the sea he turned. I'll keep you up in the water as long as we can manage, she said. She nodded and said softly, We'll use the road you built as far as it goes. He took her free hand and led her into the water. It was cold. It was bitter cold, and the cold light from the east behind them shone on the foam lines hissing in the sand. When they stepped on the beginning of the causeway, the bricks were firm under their feet, and the child had gone back to sleep on her shoulder in a fold of her cloak. As they went on, the buffeting of the waves got stronger. The tide was coming in. The outer breakers wet their clothes, chilled their flesh, drenched their hair and faces. They reached the end of his long work. There lay the beach a little way behind them, the sand dark under the cliff over which stood the silent, paling sky. Around them was wild water and foam. Ahead of them was the unresting water, the great abyss, the gap. A breaker hit them on its way into shore, and they staggered. The baby, waked by the sea's hard slap, cried a little wail in the long, cold, hissing mutter of the sea, always saying the same thing. Oh, I can't, cried the mother, but she gripped the man's hand more firmly and came on at his side. Lifting his head to take the last step from what he had done towards no shore, he saw the shape riding the western water, the leaping light, the white flicker like a swallow's breast catching the break of day. It seemed as if voices rang over the sea's voice. What is it, he said but her head was bowed to her baby, trying to soothe the little wail that challenged the vast babbling of the sea. He stood still and saw the whiteness of the sail, the dancing light above the waves, dancing on towards them and towards the greater light that grew behind them. Wait, the call came from the form that rode the gray waves and danced on the foam. Wait, the voices rang very sweet, and as the sail leaned white above him, he saw the faces and the reaching arms and heard them say to him, Come, come on the ship, come with us to the islands. Hold on, he said softly to the woman, and they took the last step. Hello, that was Things, written by Ursula Le Guin in 1970. With me to discuss it is my fellow host, Mark Sinker, and our special guest, Katie Grocott. Katie, what did you think of this story? Um, I really liked it. Um, I thought it was very, very Ursula Le Guin indeed. Um, now, what, what do you mean by that? I mean that um, if you hadn't told me it was written by her, well, that would have been my first guess. I would have totally kind of gravitated towards that as a guess. Why? Um just um, a lot of the themes that are kind of touched upon in it and a lot of the way that um, she uses language. She she occasionally uses extremely kind of um, precise words to describe things that um, you wouldn't... You, if, if you were kind of writing that sentence, perhaps you wouldn't hit on that word, but she, you can quite clearly tell that she's hit on that particular word to describe it for a reason. Um, just the kind of vaguely mystical sense that the story has about it and um, kind of the themes of um, striving towards something else in a kind of 
unspecified time of apocalypse. She, there's kind of hope there, and I think she is very much into that as a theme. Mark, what did you make of it? Um, <clears throat> I, I wanted to choose something to uh, kind of bracket the end of the new wave because this series we've in the first series we we were looking at science fiction stories from before the new wave really which is sort of meant science fiction stories up to the middle of the 60s at the latest and this series I wanted to actually pick some from the new wave specifically from it or from the era of that and I was quite keen I was always quite keen to pick a story by Ursula Le Guin because she's a quite an important writer for me as a reader and she, I think, above all, represents the the arrival of the next phase, the phase which, which the new wave kind of bled into and actually dissipated through. She's older than a lot of the new wave writers. She was 40-ish. I think she was born in 1929, so in 1970 she's, she's you know, entering her 40s. And she had a series of very, very big successes in the early 70s, the uh, novel called The Dispossessed, um, a novel called The... Left Hand of Darkness, which is from slightly earlier, and then a, tri- a trilogy of children's stories called the Earthsea Trilogy, which are all big prize-winning successes, very uh, well-loved, well-read, widely read. And I think what the story quite nicely captures, I mean, some of the things that Katie said, but it, it captures this move from a... Uh, Science fiction as a sort of thrill-powered, the 2000 AD idea of, of science fiction as a kind of thrill-powered medium for boys to a much more... With res- huge twists at the end. And-, and, and yeah, I mean, sort of space opera battles in space kind of thing to a, a, a much more reserved, um, thoughtful, uh, melancholic... Um, but also inclusive... Uh, yes, and and I mean, uh, <clears throat> what it was also representative of was is often described as the feminist wave of, of science fiction, which uh, coincides with a lot of um, emergence in politics itself of the first wave of feminism, and uh, so I mean, just open discussions of uh, gender and and what. Uh, different roles in social um, the social setup are for men and women and uh, this story definitely has an element quite a sort of low uh, it, it's not overt at all but it is very much about that what what um, what people's roles are in responding to some um, uh, great social crisis the crisis not at all clearly defined it's very what the big change that they're reacting to and trying to flee is is totally off stage we never it's never described what's actually happened the only thing that's described is the response of certain locals falling into kind of groups and i think again that's something that is is something i think she was very good at this uh slightly oblique way of discussing quite complicated things in terms of the reactions of apparently quite ordinary people to each other and how they are responding and, and fighting among themselves. Well, what what actually is happening in the, in this story? Do we think, Katie? What 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 is that? It's the end of the world, sort of. Or well, I kind of have this idea that um, it's a religious crisis and that um, the people, because you know, you have the the people who have made it 
the, their business for the rest of their lives to shut themselves away in a house on the hill and, and weep until the end comes. And there are those who um, want to basically go around destroying everything. But do you think this is a, a, a state of affairs that has gone on for a long time, or do you think this is something that's just happening now because um, of a... Well, I don't know. I mean, it's never really said. I kind of, I kind of got the impression that um, you know the, the signs had been building, and you know everyone said you know the end is nigh, um, and they all think it is. But I, th- I think the people who, um, although the protagonists of the story, are a kind of a bit more, they've got a bit more common sense than that, or not a bit more common sense, but they kind of prepare for the end in their own way, and it's a much more constructive way, quite literally. Um, <laughs> They don't. They don't get caught up in the the panic in the, of, his, in the hysteria and the the um, the idea that she's expanding. I think is that the whatever the religious or social cataclysm, cataclysm is that it's uh, at least at this level it's devolved into a hostility to the idea of people doing things. So that yeah the the people are being driven away from their own jobs the the he's a brick maker but her husband was a weaver and um there's various other sort of you know small kind of uh medieval sounding jobs which have just been deserted and the places that where these things were done are more or less ruined everyone seems very defined by their jobs the, the names of all the streets yes and, and it are like the uh, what scrivener's lane and and insofar as the this these two people seem to have imagined they've found a way through and out of this, it very much relates to actually thinking about the things they've learnt from their role. And her role is is being a mother. She twice as an explanation for why she's not gone crazy like all the others, just says, Well, you know, I, I've got the baby to look after. But this is a this is something that I notice very strongly on the second reading of the story. Um, up until about two pages before the end, um, the main character is the only one that is named. The, name, the main character is Lif, but she is the widow. Mm. All the way through, she's the widow. You know, the widow um, shared her meal with him. You know, the widow took her baby. But just a couple of pages before the end, she suddenly becomes the woman. And you think, ooh, that's that's new and exciting, and she's and the then, only woman mentioned in the whole story. Uh, isn't yeah, she? absolutely. And then when they're actually out on the waves, um, um, I can't cried the mother. So suddenly she gets pushed into this new kind of role. But in the very last line, she's the woman again. So it's almost as though um, her kind of slightly narrow definition of you know of her her place in society as the widow which defines her entire character as far as the story is concerned, has, has expanded. And now when you come to that last line, which I know Ursula Le Guin's last line always remind me of um, Paradise Lost. Lots of things remind me of Paradise Lost. But when <laughs> they're stepping out, you know, from the life they've known, stepping out into the new world and, you know, it, it was all before them um, and they took the last step. She's suddenly the woman. So she's kind of taken on this Eve, almost Eve-like quality. She's kind of become... Um, yeah, well, who who can say where they're going? Well, can, we, can we just talk really briefly about the end? What what happens at the end? <clears throat> it's a little, imb- I mean... It's a bit, it's, it's it's a bit very, mystical. It's very ambiguous, isn't it? Because It reminded me of the end of Children of Men. Have you seen that movie? N- yes, but I can't remember the end. Well, <laughs> I've seen all of it except the end. They, 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 they escape um, this horrible society and they're floating on a boat hoping to be picked up by 
this kind of utopian sounding project called the I don't remember what it's called, but it's a bunch of like sort of it's the forces of good. Hmm. And um, the last shot of the movie is them being picked up by this by this boat and maybe being taken to another place. This woman and her child, and it's sort of, I mean. Are they being picked up? Is this just in their heads? Or is it just in their heads? I think it's very, very, very carefully written so that basically you, the reader, not only you get to decide to make yourself feel good, but you get to be aware that that's what you're doing so that you think through the implications of your own choice at that point. So it could be that essentially they're stepping into the sea to die, but they're doing it with a sense that somehow that's an escape from this horrible world, which would be a, a religious ending, or that really these people from the islands have arrived against all odds to, or against all expectation because they, they don't really exist in the story as we know it at all. They're just in his head. That the, somehow the islands, if they're even there, because you can't quite see them, that the people have been sent from the islands to rescue them by chance or because they've because they've built? been keeping an eye on them maybe i mean this this is why i thought this story you know continued a, along a lot of themes that appear in her writing because you've you've got the hainish people in the dispossessed and, and the left hand of darkness the kind of kind of advanced super race they're kind of the galactic federation of grown-ups yeah they? they are exactly <laughs> they, you know they, they come along and kind of just before you're about to to spill the scalding kettle all over yourself they snatch it away but um there's a there's a huge long bit in the story about um how the, you know they didn't have wood and how would he make a boat without wood and what's this strange substance that, that you know would float but we don't have any um, so, kind of to them, you know, wooden boat building—that's that their ultimate technology. That's their spaceships, and you know, the Hainish are always coming down in their spaceships. But here, they've come along in their boat. So it's kind of like the—I don't know—the slightly more primitive version of that. So to them, the boat is as fantastic as a spaceship would be, and as miraculous. So I think, from that point of view, I like to think that they didn't die. So, so, of, so that was—that was your kind of gut feeling at the end. That was the. the the choice that you made at the yeah, end of the Yeah, I, 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 I do, um, I think as a reader, I do tend to, to take things as face value because it's kind of more comforting that way. The, the period that it is, the early 70s, is, is, is one of a very complex response to, I mean, there's a lot of social upheaval and anticipation of social transformation in the 60s, which by the 70s, a lot of people are beginning to fall back to a sense that it a it hasn't been achieved and some of them to think and in fact it was foolish to think it was a, was achievable that it was an unrealistic social or uh, metaphysical transformation that was being uh, pushed for and I think um, what's interesting about Ursula Gwynn is I think she's actually in herself in a very ambiguous has a very ambiguous attitude towards the the, the nature of this social transformation. It, it seems to me that in this story and in her other stories, she quite strongly values um, the idea of rural, unspoiled, quite old-fashioned idea of life. And I think it's interesting in the, in the groups of people she talks about that the people who are clearly, uh, if not the villains, then complicit with the bad thing that's happened on are the scriveners, which means the writers, the prof- the clerks, the journalists. I don't know exactly what the modern version of that, but it means people who write. 
And why are they complicit? I don't remember what, what did they do. Well, because the 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 scrivener is it's only one, but he is a scrivener, and simultaneously he's a rager. Who are the people who just destroy things? And it also says he has that attitude that the ragers have, which is a kind of lassitude, which which I think is in itself an interesting psychological claim that the people who destroy things are kind of apathetic when they're not actually destroying things well, it, it, but that he's also presumably if he's the scrivener then he's relatively speaking educated in a wider sense than a brickmaker would be or a weaver or whatever would be educated in the sense of learning his his family's trade so is educated in a very local sense but a scrivener is someone who is able to write the language of the whole region or society or whatever so is in touch in principle with the culture of a much larger territory and presumably writes it on something that's not made of wood pulp um, but <laughs> well, that, I mean, <laughs> has presumably stopped they, they doing have any animal writing. skins they have they have tanners so presumably they have vellum katie did you want to add something to, <laughs> to, to, to well no to i mean I, I was going to say that the um you know saying that the rage is a kind of simultaneously quite lax I think that's right because um, it's the kind of um, in the sense of kind of falling into despair in that they you know they can't be bothered anymore so they're just gonna totally destroy everything and my my favorite bit of the story is when um, he made sure that the tips of the rods that he's using to shore up his wall were underwater at low tide so that no rager might suspect an affirmation was being made. I mean, that's you can't really put it any more clearly than that, you know, that no one from the raging group would suspect that, you know, instead of, you know, denying that there's any hope, instead of just letting it all fall to pieces, you actually affirm something, but that obviously has, you know, the double meaning of, um, you know, hoping for something and, and you know, putting something out there against the odds. So you have these ragers who are nihilists, I, I suppose, in, in a way. They get, it's implied they get really drunk every night um, that they go and, and destroy things. But then you've got the whalers who have a different, or the, I think that's what they're called. Weepers. The weepers. The weepers. Yeah. And, so, and they have a kind of different approach to the end of the world, don't they? Yeah, we don't really hear terribly much about it, but they go onto the hill and weep. <laughs> so it, it, I guess it's a kind of ritual mourning, which is is ritual yet not very constructive. And and what the protagonists are doing is actually they're <clears throat> trying to invent a way of escape out of the thing that they do. And you know, the story is called Things, and she makes quite... I mean, there's a little introductory... Yeah, um, I, maybe I, I can read that. It's, yeah, it's, it's kind of read an, that out. It's kind of an interesting um, addendum that I guess when this story was collected, she added this little explanation at the beginning. She says, Damon Knight, editor Mirabilis. Um, just, maybe you can translate <laughs> Fab, that it one. means. <laughs> Fab, right. First published this story in a volume of Orbit under the title The End. I don't now remember how he arrived at it, but I suspect he thought that things sounded too much like something you see on the television at 1 a.m. with purple tentacles. But I have gone back to it because... And maybe we can talk about this word here. Uh, at least after reading the psychomyth, she says, it puts the right emphasis. Things you use, things you possess and are possessed by, things you build with, bricks, words. You build houses with them and towns and causeways. But the buildings fall. The causeways cannot go all the way. There is an abyss, a gap, a last step to be taken. Well, I, I Sounds mean, very poetic, but what, what is she talking about? I, if you are asking me to say what does psychomyth mean, I'm not quite sure. Um, that 
it's <laughs> I don't know what she's talking about that specific thing, but I think the general point she's making, and the reason that things is better a better title for this. I mean, the end is a bit um, over specific for a start, but things is um, the place that she uh, is suggesting that our best ideas for uh, value, constructive value come from, which is the, the things that we learn, that we know the craft that we're inside and total master or mistress of is where our best imagination comes from and that what's happened in this society, the, the problem the disease of this society is a more, that there's a kind of uh rigorous radical revolutionary nihilism which was very much abroad in some strands of 60s um utopianism which is saying no to the whole of the world we're actually in and is ultra religious in quite a uh dangerous way that the that the world as the material world has fallen it is is a state of being fallen, mm. and that that our job is to you know I mean you still occasionally get it with with strange cults which all commit suicide to to get onto the um, comet Halley Bop and sail off with their god <laughs> and their Nikes. Where the what what they're claiming is that the the revolution is actually to remove yourself from the present and the world altogether, and that's when you triumph over everything and and that this this was a um a kind of cultish uh pathology which was beginning to be quite widespread in the at the end of the 60s when when all the different uh sects for improvement were all battling against each other and some of them were very practical and some of them were very much the opposite okay so if this is in some way a pushback against that a little bit what does she mean that by there's an abyss a gap a lack um well there is this theory that um no matter how much you use language, it's the only kind of method of communication that we can we can kind of utilise. But no matter how perfectly or wholly or fully you try to describe something, um, it can never actually bring the thing into being. It can never kind of reify it. You will will always have um, a kind of a lack between how you can um, describe something and, and the thing itself. Okay, I can get with that, but uh, how does that relate to this story? Well, her, her argument about how they get rescued is that someone else steps in, effectively. Mm. I mean, they, they do some of the work for themselves, but that work is kind of gestural, well, really, I, I because mean, they're, they're building a causeway to something hundreds, if not thousands of miles away, and they get 120 feet, and he's run out of bricks, well, and he's like, not allowed to make any more. I mean, I guess... I kind of don't want to say this, but I, I guess faith covers that gap then, because... I think this is a very religious story, and I, mm. I think which I don't think is something which is present in all of her work, but it is something that she is very intrigued by as part of the part of the thing that she's looking at. She's much more geared towards the thoughtful and the um, philosophical end of science fiction.
what was interesting about the new wave as a project was it was self-consciously thinking of that the genre itself was growing up that it was going to appeal to more it was itself a more educated and intellectual project and it was intended to appeal to you know the that sort of the the appropriately um, more grown-up reader and what happened was that for a little while this looked like it really was happening and there was a lot of buzz about it and it seemed that that science fiction had somehow grown up and and was going to break out of its little ghetto in unexpected ways and then it kind of fell with a big bang back into it and that the ways that people found to get out of that and Le Guin is also you know well celebrated in the sort of academic circuit of ways of thinking about science fiction but that what had happened was that there's actually a big gulf grown up between the the kind of uh star wars star trek kids science fiction and this more sort of adult thoughtful version um so that there isn't really it's not all part of the same space which in the early years of science fiction it had been in a kind of pulpy way and then in the kind of heroic project of the new wave it had been in a much more avant-garde way it seemed like it was crossing over into territories which didn't quite live with each other and then what happened in the 70s was that they stopped living with each other they branched off into distinct niches where there was really no crossover anymore if if the dispossessed has a politics, and it seems like it sort of does, does this have a politics? Well, it, surely its politics depend on how you read the ending. Because if you're, I mean, either it it says, you know, if you're if you have faith to some particular rather sketchy thing, then you will be saved, but you'll also be dead. Or if you have faith in the sketchy thing thought of in a completely different way then you'll be saved because the grown-ups come and pick you up but i don't think those are those two politics aren't really the same sort of thing and i mean i think what's nice about the story is that you get to think through and think well what do i actually think and how do these differ (laughs) katie do you agree (laughs) (laughs) well i mean i i think what comes out of it to me is the the importance of having a work ethic um you know if you believe something, that's fine. But then if you just kind of sit on it and cry or go about absolutely destroying every, you know, everything that represents, you know, your progress up till that point, then that's, you know, something to be criticised. Whereas his causeway, fine, it's a it's kind of pathetic. It's a pathetic causeway. It is. 120 feet. But, you know, he, he learned to swim. He's the first person on yeah, uh, on, on his line that ever ever learnt to do that. A world that was would say it was known only to the fishes or something. So he's kind of discovered this. There's a sense in which it's Liv as quite an isolated figure. It doesn't feel like he has a family that he's lost, unlike the widow, who mm. obviously clearly has a family that she's lost. Is that he is some kind of slightly poetic dreamer, and he yes, he's in the course of it's not very clear what he's taught himself to swim and nobody else has ever done that before so it it has no social context in the little town that is falling apart nobody it's not only nobody's done that but nobody knows including the widow that he can do that he's the only person who knows that um i think one of the things that all of her stories are very good at is 
creating the sense of a social scope of some extent at at the same time as really just concentrating on the uh, the acts and doings of quite a small number of people and possibly in quite a constrained place in a, in a little village which is far from the centre of well, what's that- going on so that you get the sense of all the tides of politics and society raging elsewhere without knowing anything about them, just that they are doing that and that the, the concerns of the people who are discussed are pretty immediate and to do with their own the people they're in front of and you know the, the previous day and the next day. Katie, do you have something you want to add to that? Well, I mean, the, if, you, if you think about the left hand of darkness, um, that's kind of taking that to the, the ultimate extreme because you have one guy sent down as a kind of, not even an, ambas- an ambassador, he's called the Envoy, and he, he is a man who is on this planet that not only um, is kind of perpetually stuck in, in deepest winter, and it's cold, and everyone's, you know, basic. It's putting, you know, the basic needs of human beings are really kind of starkly drawn. You know, you have to eat five times a day, otherwise, you know, you'll freeze to death. You have to wrap up warm. Not only not only is there that, but um, these people have no sex. They're all kind of um, gender neutral for most of the month, until w- once a month. Um, they sort of go into heat or yeah, something? Yeah, they, they, they do. They kind of go into heat. It's it's that basic. They are they are animals, but whether they turn into a man or a woman is entirely kind of dictated by if the person next to them is turning into a man or a woman. So they have experience of both. And there's this guy, there's, you know, this man who can never quite bring himself to to call, you know, like, what do I call them? Are, are they it's? They're not he's or she's? And sometimes, you know... People have a people might get a look on their face. Oh, and it reminded me of you know an old suspicious woman, or it reminded me of an arrogant young man. And he's constantly trying to kind of um, relate his experience to to everything that's surrounding him. But of course, he just can't do it because they're so alien. And yet, at the same time, they have exactly the same you know needs and drives and and basic kind of instinctual things as he does well in in this story the 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 man and the woman are very much a man and a woman Mm. and it's i mean ursula le guin you know we we think of her okay she's one of the first really big female names in uh in in science fiction um but i mean the the woman sort of acts has very traditional kind of gender roles in this book doesn't she yes but isn't this what this is one of the sort of complex uh the conundrum of gender politics which is are you supposed to be negating the existing capabilities of the genders or are you supposed to be transcending them? So that if you say, well, let's, if you take it into the arts and say, well, you know, men are good at maths but women are good at knitting, what's the, what's the radical way through that? Is it to ensure that women get to be good at maths as well or is it to ensure that men get to be good at knitting as well? Or, or equally to point out that, as I'm sure our friend Cat <laughs> Stevens would say, um, knitting is all about math. Yeah, well, exactly. <laughs> so there's lots of little ways through that. But in fact, I think that that is, is one of the things that this is somewhat about, that she's saying, actually, it's not, um, there's nothing wrong with being good at motherhood. 
that's that's not the point. It's not the point to say that what women are great at is obviously rubbish because that's not really in itself yeah. a I mean, feminist she does, perspective. She does kind of extend this idea to all of humanity in in the dispossessed because here on on the moon on the the kind of communist settlement they they kind of have this rule that um, every ten days or so you have to go off and do you know some work such as clearing scrub for the entire community and um, you know if you are if you do try to specialize you kind of are grudgingly allowed to do it but you're you're not really seen you're, you're seen as being selfish they use um, sorry just very briefly before we uh, before we we go I just wanted to ask you if um, you felt like this story was cur- felt current to you in a way because it did to me this idea that the, here's a society facing um, uh, a, a kind of existential uh, crisis and people are having to in, think of things that haven't existed yet, for instance, wood. Um, <laughs> you know, and, uh, well, again, at, at the end of the 60s, there were, there were a lot of resources crises um, being talked about a lot. There was a sense of panic that um, the structure of things was needed to be radically changed because either it would produce uh, you know, a nuclear exchange between the two main political blocks or that, yeah, things were beginning to run out. I mean, there was an oil crisis in the, in the early 70s as well. Um, or it's not quite the same sort, but the idea that the oil uh, might run out, it's, that's, we just happen to have got closer to that point. It wasn't, an, it wasn't an unheard of or undiscussed then. But I think it fits into that, uh, that mode of thinking, the sense that actually in, instead of there being this bold future where we're going to get into rockets and get everywhere and everything is going to be kind of golden and shiny and fantastic, this sense that actually, no, we're not going to get out of this well at all. Everything is sort of coming to a horrible end. And on that end, <laughs> thank you, Mark Sinker and Katie Grocott. I'm Elisha Sessions. This has been A Bite of Stars, A Slug of Time, and Thou. <laughs>